Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Willem Bader is chief economist at Citigroup to help us kick off our coverage. And given the market check I just did, perhaps no one more appropriate <laughs> given his global coverage. Uh, Willem, in a way, we seem to be decoupling Europe and China, Asia in different places in the economic cycle and most important in the monetary policy cycle. Or, or are they? What are the implications for a world in which the United States is moving in a different direction than the other big central banks? The degree of divergence uh, is apparently diminishing, right? I mean, the notion that the Fed is going to raise anytime soon, I think, uh, has died to death. So while the Fed clearly is uh, running monetary policy for a country that is much further along in the recovery than uh, most of the rest of the world and that um, still has an underlying growth of, I think, just below 2%, which is respectable by the standards of the advanced economies, um, it, it is not, I think, uh, a, a massive divergence any longer. Uh, I doubt whether Europe and Japan can go down much further in terms of rates. They may go to minus 50 basis points, but that's it. Um, yes, they are expanding balance sheets, both in the euro area and, and in Japan. But I think the degree of divergence... Uh, really just reflects the degree of divergence in the underlying economies, where the U.S., uh, despite being very unspectacular, is still clearly stronger than uh, the Eurozone, than the U.K., or than Japan. We've seen decoupling in monetary policy regimes before. Is this similar to what we have had in the past in terms of uh, the economic cycles? Not really. First of all, the cycle is very subdued, right? This is a seven-year-old mediocre recovery in the U.S. now. In the euro area, the recovery is barely two years old. The divergence is much less intense than we have, than they have seen in the past because nobody is in a particularly strong or, as of now, particularly weak uh, position. The risks are, of course, uh, all there on the European side especially, and we could see... Uh, increased divergence if um, the consequences of Brexit, the fear of Frexit, and of Italexit were to um, really shake confidence in asset markets there. In that case, we could well see, for instance, further rate cuts, significant rate cuts in the UK. After all, they're still at a half percent for bank rate, and so they have uh, about 100 100 basis points to go, should they want to. We got Frexit and what you say? Italexit. 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 Frexit (laughs) means that France would leave the EU. Um, Well, um, uh, Mrs. Le Pen, who, as you know, uh, is at the moment uh, close to uh, leading or close second in the polls, has said, bring on Brexit. It's a good thing for France because uh, should you elect me for president, we have a referendum on, on, on EU membership. I really don't think that it is likely that she will be president, but it is more than a tail risk. In Italy, the risks are much higher. Right? Um, uh, Renzi may well lose the referendum yeah. uh, in October, November. In that case, yeah. he will have to uh, resign and we could end up it, with a five-star government. Michael McKee, I was talking to... Professor Bowder earlier about the dots, the changing of the dots. Uh, you would seem to suggest that the dots don't really matter at this point. The, the Fed is on hold and, you know, what their view of what rates will be in three years or more, I guess, would be somewhat irrelevant. Yeah, well, the dots have been so manifestly uncorrelated with uh, anything plausible for so long now that I think uh, you know, people consider them to be uh, ink spots uh, rather than, I think, meaningful information. Yes, the Fed <laughs> is on hold uh, at least until uh, December. And uh, you know, should um, the worrying scenarios in the EU uh, play out, or should there be a, a further slowdown in China, both material risks, then uh, the Fed the, the current level of rates in the U.S. may well be the cyclical high. Are you, uh, given what you were just saying, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the great European experiment? It has brought peace for uh, more than 70 years, 
and it has contributed to prosperity. So I think it has been an immensely successful uh, experiment. It needs radical overhaul if it's going to meet the political needs and desires of the European people. And the European political class is, as usual, so far behind the curve that they're looking at their own backsides, right? So um, uh, I hope that uh, reform in and of the EU will be fast enough to uh, prevent a wholesale unraveling of the EU. But that is now a more than a tail risk. Professor Bowder, with great honor to your academics, how far away are guys like you from orthodoxy? It's a strange word. It's tossed around like a bad cup of coffee at Bloomberg Surveillance. But there's orthodox economics. Are we anywhere near it? Or is everybody, including Sharyelin, flying blind? Orthodox, orthodox. In macroeconomics, there is an academic orthodoxy, which is still dominated by what we call dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium models, which is a uh, cloud cuckoo Mm. land, basically idealized competitive uh, economy with a few little frictions thrown in to make it interesting. Um, I'm very far away from that. But uh, if in the wider sense of orthodoxy, I pick uh, bits from uh, Keynesian economics, from monetarism, uh, from Marxism for that much, I beg, borrow and steal from all the orthodox economists, even uh, sometimes from this uh, neoclassical rest expectations, uh, Chicago, Minnesota school, which I think is in many ways so dysfunctional, uh, but it has insights that despite (laughs) <laughs> the the whole enchilada being useless uh, can help your analysis. So you have to be eclectic in economics. <laughs> These days you have to be particularly so. Uh, Tom, Willem and I were talking about uh, the thing that worries him the most, and surprisingly you were saying that uh, you are worried less about Brexit than about Italy at this point. Brexit, the damage is done? It, it's happened, right? Um, in a way, there's only upside now. If Britain negotiates something better than uh, uh, the WTO solution, which basically means that there's no agreement on anything and they have uh, you know, roughly free trade in uh, physical goods and services and deeply restricted trade uh, in, in services and um, have uh, no passporting, uh, no labor mobility, that would be the worst. If they get closer to Switzerland or ideally the European Economic Area solution that Norway has, which is basically EU membership without say, in the decision-making, right, that would be unfortunate for Britain, but it would be, uh, I think, uh, good relative to where we are well, now. So no downside in Britain. Italy right, and, and uh, other sort of anti-EU and anti-Euro movements in the Netherlands and in France concern me much more at this stage. The damage is done in uh, the United Kingdom, you say, but uh, the, the, the symptoms are yet to be felt. We're just starting to see some economic data. Are you, uh, is Citigroup calling for a recession for the UK? Well, uh, um, I think the official forecast is uh, slightly stronger than a recession. We definitely see a, a significantly lower path of actual output. I think that especially if we get further rumblings about the Scots leaving and or Northern Ireland, and if the talks or the non-talks between the EU and the UK um, uh, turn more hostile and uncompromising, then uh, this could turn into quite a uh, a deep and long-lasting recession because uh, uncertainty about the eventual resolution would give way not to a positive certainty, but to the certainty of a lousy outcome. Where's the consumer right now? I mean, it is Jobs Day. Where's the American consumer? I mean, it's 68 69%, 70%. Of the economy, Mm -hmm. is that how you get to an economic slowdown or recession? Um, Well, uh, clearly, as long as the consumer keeps spending, the the main chunk uh, driver of GDP uh, is uh, is in reasonable shape. And I anticipate that with jobs growth still uh, reasonable, we're expecting 155K at 8.30 uh, today, and uh, with um, real wage growth, positive for once, <laughs> right? And uh, with house prices still up there, and in fact rising, the main drivers of uh, uh, consumer demand are, are still intact. So I don't see in the U.S. at the moment uh, household consumption-led 
um, uh, further slowdown. Recessions, however, are almost invariably uh, born out of disappointing capex or inventory right. accumulation. So and there certainly is room for uh, for a further slowdown there if uh, worries about the U.S. election become more prominent. We just have one minute left, so a very qu- uh, this is the only question we were really asking about the jobs report today, but a quick analysis. You talk about income gains. We're expecting uh, year-over-year uh, average hourly earnings up to 2.7%, mm-hmm. uh, like a cycle high. Is that because of minimum wage, or are we starting to see the declining unemployment rate actually raise wages? I don't see that the declining uh, unemployment rate would raise wage growth relative to expected inflation. And uh, so there has been some tightening there, uh, but, but not much. I think it is simply uh, the reflection of uh, both cost push, minimum wage time levels, and um, the beginnings of uh, you know, the Phillips curve mm-hmm. reasserting itself. But it's still, it's still very weak. It's just the very low price inflation, headline price inflation, that turns what is very right. modest uh, money wage growth into uh, rather you know, well, uh, attractive real wage growth for the first mm-hmm. time since Mr. Piketty wrote his book. He ends with a final shot. I noticed that. Villain Bowder, thank you uh, so much for sitting here. We greatly appreciate your time on this Jobs Day. Jim Glassman with us here with J.P. Morgan. And now joining us, Bill Gross of Janus Capital. Uh, Bill, I guess this is a point where you smooth things out. I'm looking at a three-month moving average of 147,000, I guess that that stabilizes the shock that we saw last month. Yeah, I think so. Uh, You know, the Fed statement uh, last month and the the minutes suggested employment uncertainty. And as you smooth things out for three months at, uh, you know, close to 150,000, I think that does it. I mean, the unemployment rate went up to uh, to 4.9, did it not? The wages increased by a 0.1 as opposed to a 0.2. And, and so you know, I think um, things are not as hunky-dory as uh, 280,000 might suggest, but you know, back to a, a normalized 150,000, I, I, I think it's nothing to get, get excited about. It may not be something to get excited about, but does it get anyone interested in what Janet Yellen and company are going to do? Does this change the calculation of when they might move at all for you? No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, you know, they still have Brexit uh, to to look into the uh, eyes, the whites of the Brexit's eyes. I guess they have problems uh, with Italian banks, or the Fed doesn't, but the uh, the ECB and the EU do. Uh, the problems with the UK property uh, mutual funds. Uh, you know, there's a, a a sense of illiquidity in markets, and and the Fed. Of course, is is very obsessed and concerned with markets to the extent that uh, there's discord around the world. Um, you know, I, th- I think the Fed stays where it is. They they've wanted to raise interest rates. They did it once. I, th- I think they want to uh, have us believe that they'll raise several times and therefore have a pretty positive yield curve, which will help banks and insurance companies. But for the most part, I, I don't think this changes much. Well, just to clarify, your call is for how many rate moves this year? Well, the market only calls for a half over the next 12 months, and uh, <laughs> the 12 months beyond that, an- another half. So 12 basis points each. Uh, that's that's the market. I, I, I think they raise once or try to raise once, and if they continue to get employment numbers like this, and uh, if they can get those wages up, uh, then uh, you know perhaps they'll have their chance yeah. later in the year. I think they... They really do want to raise rates. I think some of them, uh, like Bullard and uh, Evans, uh, have a sense that they need higher interest rates in order to right. balance out the savings versus investment element in the uh, economy. In the markets come back right now. We had stronger yen, and then we had weaker yen off the shock of the report, a good report with good revisions. And then we've got the yen coming back again. Bill Gross, I, without question in our lifetimes, this is the most price-to-perfection bond market we've ever seen. Has your day-to-day life changed when you see yields? I mean, the yield goes from 139 to 141. These are shocking yields and shocking bond valuations. What are you doing day-to-day within this milieu? Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it's priced to perfection. I'll change that a little bit if you will permit me, Tom. It's priced to absurdity. And, and so... 
You know, uh, one knows that $12 trillion worth of uh, sovereign bonds are in negative yield space. One knows that in, in Germany that uh, the ECB can't really buy 40% of German bonds because they're yielding less than 40 basis points. One knows in Japan that almost everything, including the 40-year JGB, is at yeah. zero or less. And so it's an absurd market. And what do you do is the question. Well, you obviously don't buy uh, those bonds. That That's something that uh, German banks and insurance companies have to buy because they got to put their money somewhere. And so you look for substitutes and some, some type of certainty. The, the trick in this business, Tom, is, is to buy the highest return relative to the risk. I, I would say every asset class is at risk. The question is, which one is at less risk? And right. I, I, think, I think my dominant premise is that central banks will continue to do what they do, uh, despite the fact that I disagree with it. And if that's the case, then the, the volatility of central bank uh, positions, the volatility of uh, the policy rates around the, the world, in the developed world, will stay relatively constant. And so you want to uh, take advantage of that by selling optionality around it. That would include buying <clears throat> mortgages. That would include selling outright options. That would include, you know, basically uh, right. upping your income from something like 1.4 on a 10-year to something like 5 or 6 percent on an annual Right. Basis. And to do a Janus Capital jargon alert, folks, when Mr. Gross sells options, those derivatives, that brings in an income stream uh, to his fund to keep him in chips. Bill Gross, if I look at into the weekend and into July, into the second half, is Bill Gross looking at Janet Yellen's American world and, for that matter, a troubled Europe is in equilibrium or are the disequilibrium so great that you need to be vigilant for exogenous shocks? Well, uh, yeah, I think one must uh, be prepared. And, and how fat is that fat tail? Um, it, it's hard to say, but it, um, you know, it doesn't approach a black swan, but maybe a, a, a gray swan. There are problems everywhere. I talked about the UK uh, property situation. We know the Italian banks are now asking for a a, a bailout as opposed to a bail-in. Uh, we're not quite sure what's going on with China, but uh, you know, I observed that the Chinese stock markets, you know, basically uh, stay level uh, throughout the entire night, each and every night, and so one has to suspect that some uh, something's going on there. I I, I simply think, yeah, that there's a, a potential uh, problems right. almost everywhere in a highly levered world, and and that's the key, Tom. Okay. When you have a highly levered world, then uh, almost anything can set it off. Okay, you know, Mike McKee wants to get in here with a lot of questions. Let me ask. One more question before we go to my colleague. Uh, Bill Gross, Ambrose Evans Pritchard wrote a brilliant article overnight in The Telegraph about China exporting their deflation over to us. Is Janet Yellen running a non-orthodox policy because she's got to accept the disinflation from China and the rest of a troubled economic world? Well, I think she does, and certainly if she continues to talk about raising interest rates, that would uh, make it any, even worse. Yes, China, you know, as they devalue by 6 or 7% over the last uh, 7 or 8 months, maybe 10% annualized, is exporting deflation. And some investors don't quite understand how that could be the case, but it, it basically means that uh, you know, we can buy uh, Chinese goods much cheaper, that it uh, basically erodes our manufacturing base as it becomes uh, less competitive, et cetera, et cetera. And so China exports their deflation to the rest of the world. Yellen, how does she fight that? Well, she certainly doesn't fight it with a stronger uh, dollar and, and with an interest rate hike. And so, yeah, I, I think that uh, tempers her behavior uh, certainly to some extent. I think what all of our viewers and listeners want to know from Bill Gross, including the institutional elites like Madame Lagarde warning yesterday with the IMF, is when this Alice in Wonderland world unwinds, will it unwind along smooth, predictable, dampened reaction functions, or will it unwind with ugly jump conditions where there's real damage? Which way do you go in that debate? Well, policymakers are trying to make it smooth, are they not? And they have Agreed. for the last uh, five or six years with uh, monetary stimulation and uh, changing in rules at the last minute. You know, right now we've we've got uh, you know Germany basically uh, suggesting that bail in uh, could be bail out for Italian banks uh, under special 
circumstances. We've, we've got the UK property uh, mutual funds basically changing their unit value or the, the worth of the fund by 15 or 20 percent right. overnight simply to prevent you know, uh, money coming out, which to me is incredible. It, it, it makes an investor say, what is my money okay. worth? It was worth Bill, I want to interrupt. There's a small-time bond manager out in the West Coast. Mike, what's his name? Gunlock? Remember him? There's a guy named Gunlock, Bill Gross, who's, who's on West Coast Time with you. And he focuses on Deutsche Bank as a proxy for the European banks. Would you consider the position Deutsche Bank is in? Or if they have to structure cocoa hybrids for the Italian banks to be the kind of jump condition that leads to real instability? Well, it could be. We've known that Deutsche Bank is uh, is a weak link in the uh, in the banking system in Euroland for a long, long time. And we watch the stock prices; it sinks to eleven and ten. And we know that uh, there, there must be a hole there somewhere. We know that uh, Deutsche Bank is over uh, hundreds of trillions of dollars of derivatives, uh, some of which they've uh, closed out, but we don't know. Right what's left. Um, and, and so, you know, the Deutsche Bank was the bastion of, of German banking for such a long time, but then it got caught in the rush to uh, derivative madness, and now uh, we, we see the problem. So certainly, uh, you know, certain Italian banks, uh, Deutsche Bank, um, the uh, lack of confidence in policymakers as they change the rules in order to support them, yeah. you know, all of, all of these things, uh, you know, reduce confidence in markets because investors know right. that artificial prices are the, the theme of the day. One thing, Bill, that you've been comfortable with in the recent quarters has been Mexico. If I see a Brexit knock-on effect in all the contagion in Europe going over to a Mexican peso from 18 to a weaker 19, who knows where it's going, does even Bill Gross have to stop doing normal procedures because of the butterfly effect of Brexit in Europe over to an emerging market proxy like Mexico? Yeah, I think that's very uh, prescient, Tom. I, I, I think Mexico is used as a proxy for emerging markets. It's the best of the emerging markets. It actually has uh, half the debt uh, relative to GDP of the United States, but uh, nonetheless, Mexico and the peso you know, basically take it on the chin when uh, things start to go wrong. Um, but w what does that mean in terms of policy? Well, we, we saw last week that the central bank raised interest rates in order to you know, basically uh, support the peso to some extent. And so, yeah, you can expect some volatility there. I would point out that uh, the Mexican 10-year tip, the, the linker, uh, the inflation-adjusted bond, you know, basically yields 3% uh, real as opposed to you know, uh, 35 basis points in the United States. That's yeah. a huge spread. And so, uh, yeah, you can adjust for the credit quality, but it's a, it's a value absent, uh, you know, a, a rush to safety. We've seen a lot of people rushing into corporate bonds as everybody in the world tries to get some sort of yield here. Is that a smart move at this point? Are people taking too much of a risk, uh, using it maybe as a proxy for sovereigns? Well, Mike, you know, you know it, it's a quick formula. You, you figure out what the spread is. Let's, let's take high yield at 450 basis points. You figure out what the uh, annualized defaults will be in the recoveries. Let's say 4% uh, with a recovery of, uh, you know, 50%. Uh, and so that takes two points off the four and a half. So that leaves you two and a half percent, you know, relative to uh, your treasuries. Um, you know, that's not a bad deal, but it's not the deal that investors think they're going to get. And if we have problems elsewhere, like we've been talking about, then certainly those spreads are going to widen out. I, I think it's obvious that when interest rates are at zero or negative, that uh, that everything's tied together. You know, the thigh bone and the knee bone and the hip bone and junk bonds and stocks and uh, negative interest bonds are all tied together in some way. And so you, you must assume, I think, uh, that, that the high yield bond area is artificially priced and at risk under certain circumstances. I wouldn't buy them. Well, effectively, the matter of fact, Go ahead. Matter of fact, I'm short them. Huh. I'm short them. Uh, across all uh, categories uh, of, of uh, corporate or just uh, high yield? 
No, um, you, you know, there are uh, CDX, uh, which is a, an index of uh, high-yield bonds, and an uh, IGCDX, uh, which is an index of uh, investment-grade bonds. And, you know, those are uh, derivatives that are easily traded. The uh, IGCDX uh, trades at about 80 basis points, the high-yield, you know, basically at about 425. And so, yes, uh, when, you, when you buy protection as opposed to sell protection, uh, which I've done, that's the same as shorting, uh, then you're giving up that carry, uh, but you're, you're looking for a widening of spreads, and I think ultimately that's what happens in both of those markets. With the cost of money uh, for banks trading at basically effectively 37 basis points, is, are, are corporate bonds the, way, the channel for monetary policy now? Well, um, they certainly are, are beginning to be uh, with the ECB, are they not? Stocks are the, the asset class of the day with the Swiss National Bank that we just found out. They have uh, $500 billion worth of, uh, of uh, stocks around the world, including Apple and Johnson & Johnson. It, uh, to yeah. me, that's uh, staggering. We, we've known that the Japanese buy stocks, but I never knew that the Swiss National Bank bought, bought stocks. Uh, you know, it's almost like a sovereign wealth fund. And so, um, you know, the, this entire market is distorted by, uh, by cash flows that right. uh, never have been. Oh, Bill, you know, I look at Swiss Frank and I think of Bob Sinch at Amherst Pierpont has been looking at sterling Swissy as a proxy for safe haven versus all going on in the United Kingdom. Bill, I think all of our world would like to know, the Bloomberg surveillance world would like to know what you were thinking in the drama of the Brexit vote. What were you thinking as you saw the United Kingdom shift to leave versus the presumed remain? Well, I was watching that overnight, and I, uh, what I was watching was that, uh, y you know, I had some options on uh, U.S. Treasuries, both calls and puts, and, uh, you know, that uh, initially the, the U.S. Treasuries were declining in price and uh, declining too much, but then all of a sudden, um, you know, as uh, Brexit was winning, uh, Treasuries went up and were going up too much. So, uh, you know, when you sell volatility, you, want to, you don't want to sell as much volatility as happened on that night. And I, it was a long night for me. It turned out very well. But, um, you know, that's, that's the problem with a, with a sudden change. There, there's, there's so many positions. There's so much leverage uh, currency-wise, as you point out, almost, uh, you know, every five minutes, Tom, in your program, you're very currency-related, and I, I think that's, that's good. There are huge currency positions that have to be unwound and rebalanced. There, there are huge positions in terms of credit uh, and, and uh, treasuries. There's huge positions across uh, bonds and JGBs and, and uh, U.S. treasuries. And so, you know, all of this, when something happens, you know, it induces lots of volatility and a, a lot of loss-taking on one side and profit-taking on the other. It, it's not the way capitalism should be run. It's a casino as opposed uh, to, a, to a Midwestern farm. Bill Gross with us on Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. Michael McKee, step in here with a final well, comment uh, to Mr. Gross as he goes back to the casino. I'm just curious because the, the geopolitical situation hasn't changed uh, and so people are still going to be looking for yield. In this casino, where are you most likely to lose? What's the most vulnerable category? Uh, sovereigns, high yield, emerging market debt? Uh, where do you want to be the most careful? Well, anything with a negative yield, I can guarantee you that a term or <laughs> There's a, a lot with that, a negative yield right lose. now. So, yeah, yeah, so that's uh, that's pretty easy. Don't don't buy them expecting negative yields to go even more negative, although that's certainly been the case. So avoid those and avoid you know, closely tied links to that. Uh, that would mean corporate bonds that in some cases are trading at negative yields, corporate spreads that are narrow. You know, to me, uh, the, the safest uh, situations in the marketplace are relatively safe right. arbitrage. Um, you know, th there's a case of uh, SAB, uh, which is um, uh, Miller Brewing being bought by Anheuser-Busch. It's a London based company. It's uh, got two or three percent over the next two months uh, annualized. It's an eight or nine percent type of deal, but they've already raised 
$60 billion. They're well on their way to completing that merger. And so, yeah, take the, take the safe arbitrage right. deal and, and well, forget about the rest. Bill, you have been more than kind to devote this much time to us this morning. We'll let you get back to the casino, as you call it. Uh, and congratulations, Bill, on the one-year track record of your unconstrained effort at Janus. It has been better uh, than good over 12 months for Mr. Gross. Bill Gross is with Janus Capital. And now, folks, very quickly here, we're, we're going to, because we have Tobias for the rest of the half hour, we're going to totally rip up the script and talk hockey, which is not, you know, our audience is like, Tom, don't do this. No, Tom, but don't do this. Tobias, I, I, know, I know Tom's going to bring up the you, Subban trade. You, I don't know you, what the are, that. you are, folks, to put perspective, when you see the New York Times with an article of the Rangers beating the Canadians, and there's a guy in the front row against the glass. In Mr. Conant's seats, and he's got a Montreal Canadian jersey on. That's Tobias Lefkovich. <laughs> That's how diehard you are. Yeah, this was the I most give, shocking I give, trade. I will give credit to the Rangers fans. They don't throw stuff at me, even though I'm wearing my Canadian jersey. Maybe it's because it's a John Bellavoe jersey. But. You traded your iconic defenseman, and many hockey people say that was a good transaction. Look, I, I, I think the stuff that we've seen in the press about it has been, you know, he, there was distraction in the locker room, that kind of thing. There was clearly bad blood between Terrien Bergevin, which is the coach and the general manager of the Canadiens, and, and Mr. Subban. I'm stunned by the trade. I like Shea Weber. He's a great player, but I just, I, I, it, it, okay. I don't know what Bergevin is thinking other um, than his own ego. Yeah, well, we, uh, we, we need to point this out uh, because uh, lost in all of what we were talking about uh, today with the U.S. numbers, uh, I think Mr. Subban contributed to this, the net change in employment. Canada loses. <laughs> Canada loses uh, it's jobs. It's a swap, Mike. So it's a Canada swap. Canada lost <laughs> 700 jobs in June. The, the, the magnitude <laughs> is completely right. different, but the unemployment rate goes down to 6.8% because they get Mr. Weber in return. Right. So we digress here. Let's get back to scripture, jo- Tobias. Job numbers you have to also keep yeah. in mind. Canada's a tenth the size of the U.S. So. Okay. <laughs> and, and we've noticed that in the Stanley Cup. Tobias Levkovich, what is Ooh, the city group's surprise index say right now? Uh, it's actually been improving uh, more recently, um, you know, across a broad spectrum. So it's it's been kind of out of sync with the sense of dire economic consequences that markets have been struggling with. Um, now, you have to be a little car- careful. The City Economic Surprise Index is, I think, somewhat misunderstood. It's created by our FX guys. Um, and it tracks trailing data as well as future data. So there's a constant movement of that data. There's this mean reversion aspect to it, getting a little technical. But you got to be careful in how you read the Economic Surprise Index as being indicative necessarily of an improving or a worsening economic trade. Do you, do you ever trade. trade on the well, – Well, I don't trade on it. Yeah. But uh, certainly the FX traders use it you know, a lot. These are you know, very smart, quantitative, mathematical guys. In short term, creative. they're moving things pretty fast. They move very fast and you know, little – Tweaks 0.3%, 0.4% in a given day is huge when you're dealing <laughs> okay. with the currency market. The jobs report is the big number of the day, 287,000 jobs created, totally shocking everybody in the same way that it did last month. Uh, Tobias Lefkowitz is with us. He's uh, the chief uh, equity, U.S. equity strategist for uh, Citigroup. And um, when, when something like that happens, I'm just curious. What do you tell your traders on the floor to do? In it, it sort of reminds me, and I used this uh, this uh, allegory last week of the the airplane that NASA uses when it goes up and then it, it drops immediately, so people are weightless. And it, on the trading floor, there's got to be about a minute or so of absolute weightlessness. What is the price for this number? What are they supposed to do? I think you're supposed to sit back and take a breath. You're, you, just as much as you get a shockingly bad number, you got to say, okay, what's in that number that, that probably explains it? So last month you could have said the Verizon strike. Um, maybe there's some seasonals in there. And, and you know, is everything else falling apart? And in the case of last month, we were looking at things like hiring intentions, uh, jobless claims, et cetera. Most of the data was telling you this is somewhat of an aberrant number. It's not a, it's not a pattern. And I would probably say the same about a 287,000 job number. It's probably not the pattern. I don't think it's – there's quite the strength in the economy to generate that kind of support. So the idea of averaging out these numbers and smoothing them is probably the smarter way to approach it. Now, that's that's a 
investor's perspective, a trader's perspective. Saying, I don't, I can't think about what's going to happen in a month on a revision. Right. Um, I've got to think about what's going to happen immediately, and the market's going to trade a certain way. So bond yields are probably going to go higher if everybody all of a sudden believes there's a much stronger economy out there. And and that's kind of what's played out in the marketplace. You've seen the currencies move similarly to reflect that. Well, that's not the way it's playing out right now. The well, 10-year note yield uh, just went negative for uh, briefly. It is now unchanged at 137. So uh, a quick knee-jerk reaction, but a continued flattening, Tom. Yeah, it's it's a very nuanced tape right now. Future's up 14, but I'm, I'm watching. The reason I pause there, folks, I was glued to the screen watching the nuances. Tobias, I believe you're in a world where you care about persistency of cash flow generated from confident corporate officers doing investments for future revenues. And the cash flow can be now, or you can discount the future. Is your world turned upside down? Can you do normal Tobias Lefkovich work? You should. Um, You know, not, not, Tobias left, which has worked with more traditional, you know, capital asset pricing model structures. You, you play the cards you're given. You're not played the cards that you wish you had. So the environment is what it is. Um, low yields have some negative consequences. I think when you're talking to, to Bill Gross before, you were talking about what it means for pension funds, insurance companies, et cetera. But it also means something about the present value that future stream is higher and therefore, multiples are going to be higher in an environment where low rates are persistent. The, the, the question that you have and what we've seen in markets are people buying these kind of persistent, steady cash flow companies that can pay out more dividends. And they're paying a lot for what is historically called defensive stocks. And once you start paying a very hefty price for them, they aren't that defensive anymore. They're actually more risky because of the valuations on them. So I worry about people kind of rushing into a particular, what you call a high-quality minimum volatility fund, which then buys a lot of utilities and staples and things like that, um, that have a nice yield and comfort level, if you want to call it that, that they can maintain that yield. But what are you paying for it? And investors aren't paying enough attention to that. Tobias, those stocks are priced at nifty 50 levels. You're too young to remember this. I remember, I don't remember Maurice or Henri, well, Henri I do, but I don't remember really Maurice the Rocket and all that. But there was a point where they were priced to perfection. Everybody agrees bonds are priced to perfection. Is your world priced to perfection? I, I don't believe the broad equity market is. Okay. Um, so let's, you know, if you go back and look at what was happening back in 1999, where you had the tech stocks priced to perfection, um, and they were, you know, some of these stocks were insanely valued, right? Priced to eyeballs, not priced to earnings or future earnings. Um, that's when you get kind of freaked out and, and the whole market mm-hmm. being dragged up. We don't really have that across the spectrum. Um, many stocks, take financials, are really beat up, trading at very low price to put tangible books in the in the banking area because right. of flat curves and things like that. Um, so you've got chunks of the market in the value area that, that look pretty attractive relative to some of the growthier segments or some of the, right. again, stable areas. Tobias Levkovich, thank you so much with Citigroup. Uh, it has been a, an exceptional week of smart conversation on economics, finance, investment, and international relations. This Jobs Day is always, uh, we feel gifted, and now joining us with a wonderful perspective from PIMCO, Joachim Fels. Uh, Dr. Fels, I don't even know where to begin other than I think I'm where the Joachim Fels research notes of four and five and eight years ago told us where we'll be. Are we at the beginning of the disintegration of core Europe? I don't think so, Tom. This is not the beginning of disintegration in in core Europe. I think Europe is going through a difficult time, but I think policymakers have learned something during the crisis. And I think there's now much less appetite than there might have been a few years ago for allowing this construct, this very difficult and complicated construct of the euro uh, to disintegrate. So um, I think they will continue to muddle through. And uh, I think that's that's really what's going on, muddling through um, and trying to gradually make the euro a more solid currency. Yeah, but how do you do that uh, without a fiscal authority, the problem they've had all along? Yeah, exactly, Mike. So 
I think the way it works is that Europe only progresses through crises. We've seen that again and again. Right now, it's a half-built house. We have a monetary union. Uh, we have maybe half of a banking union in Europe. It's not complete yet because there's no uh, joint deposit insurance, for example. Um, and as, as you noted, we don't have a fiscal union yet. So uh, it's a half-built house. And what usually happens is whenever you head into a crisis, the next crisis in Europe, they are making more progress uh, towards that union. So I think uh, you probably need another crisis uh, to make that next step towards a fiscal union. Does that keep the world, until they figure this out, uh, is, is it weighing on, on global growth for a long time to come? I think it's, yes, it's weighing on global growth in the sense that uh, it is weighing down on European growth. Um, it creates uncertainty or it adds to uncertainty um, about the economic outlook. And uh, so there's always a residual risk that something goes wrong in Europe, that we're heading into the next crisis. And in that sense, yes, it, 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 it is weighing down on global growth. But unfortunately, um, that's not going to change anytime soon. Are we on a house of cards? I say this, uh, Joachim Fels, because the Dow just hit 18,000. It's been there many times before, up 118 points. A VIX, a positively Fels like 13.75. I mean, I guess it's all clear on the, on the stock front, but the oddity here is bubbles. From an economic standpoint, does Joachim Fels suggest our modern distortions have placed us into financial bubbles? I don't think we're seeing a bubble in the stock market. I think the stock market is, I mean, valuations are not cheap. Uh, valuations are, you know, above average, somewhat elevated. But we are in a new environment where we have a much, much lower neutral rate of interest, what we call the new neutral here at PIMCO. And uh, if you think that this environment will prevail, that we will continue to live in a low interest rate environment, then I think that justifies higher stock valuations. I wouldn't call this a bubble unless you believe that the bond market is a bubble. But I don't think the bond market is in a bubble. I think what we're seeing here is that the equilibrium interest rate, what the Fed calls R star, is very low. It's around zero, maybe even negative. And if that is the case, then, you know, Stocks are not massively overvalued, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't talk about a bubble here. It's just a new environment, uh, something that we've called the new normal and the new neutral. Does the accommodation provided by the Fed, the European Central Bank, and uh, the Bank of Japan at all does it matter anymore? Is it doing anything anymore? Well, I I I, I still think that monetary policy is effective. There are clearly diminishing returns to monetary easing. So in a way, you could argue they have to do ever more to get the same small effect. But I would say we're still in uh, an environment where the returns to monetary policy to monetary easing are positive, even though they are diminishing. Um, but it is a worry that we still have to rely on monetary policy as almost the only game in town. It would right. be much better if we got some support, at least some support, some more support from fiscal policy. I believe Italian banks need support. You're you're truly an expert on this. I put you in a category with Charles Weiplotz and Paul DeGuar and others that have really thought about European dynamics. How would you, what would be the best practice for Chancellor Merkel in assisting Italy after years of Italian irresponsibility? I think what Italy needs is a cleanup of its banking system. I think, you know, everybody realizes that in Europe. Uh, the only debate now is how do you do that within the existing legal framework, uh, especially the, the bank resolution framework. So I think um, what needs to happen and I think what will eventually happen is that Italy will be allowed to clean up its banks, to put money into the banks, uh, to do something like a... We'll call it a TARP program for the Italian banks um, that addresses the non-performing loan issues and that puts uh, the banks on a more solid capital base. I, I think this will eventually happen, but as usual in Europe, right, there's a lot of debate around how to do it. 
um, how to do it within the existing mm-hmm. legal framework. Um, and the big issue is, uh, will we get a bail-in of creditors uh, in the Italian banks? That's really the debate because, yeah. as you know, there are a lot of retail investors who bought subordinated debt debt of the Italian banks, Italian retail investors, um, who were made to believe that this is a safe investment. You mentioned a savings glut. I would say some of that savings glut is not individuals, but as corporations, which is this whole arch idea of creating investment. Let's start in the supply side. Is this an age of oversupply? Yes, I think we have oversupply. of savings, as you already mentioned. Uh, We have oversupply of capacity, particularly in the manufacturing sector, and most of that uh, overcapacity is in China. Yeah, but oversupply in the sense that uh, when you talk about uh, savings glut, uh, it's fueled by individuals. Uh, Demographics plays a role. People have to and want to save more for their retirement. And corporates are hoarding cash on their balance sheet. Um, they're not investing in the real economy. They're using some of the cash to buy back their own stock. Uh, but there's very little investment. Um, but maybe, Tom, maybe this is because we move into an age, into a time where you require less capital. Uh, our economy yeah. is becoming more is is becoming <clears throat> more services dominated. Also, new technologies mean you need less capital. So there's just less need for for CapEx and for business investment. Could the service sector generate jobs if that's the case? Oh, yes. The service sector is generating a lot of jobs. And we saw this in this job report again. Uh, That's really where the jobs are created. The problem is that many of these jobs are low productivity and low wage jobs. So what we're seeing in in the economy in the U.S., but also in other economies, is that technology and globalization has led to job destruction uh, uh, of high productivity jobs, particularly in the manufacturing sector. And many of those workers who get displaced in the manufacturing sector eventually end up in the service sector uh, where they earn lower average wages and where productivity is lower. And maybe that's one of the explanations for why productivity growth has slowed so much in the U.S. Well, there's a a question as to whether um, it's it's a tax policy issue and Congress can change that. I wonder if it's to, to what extent it's an uncertainty issue. It's a people in the C-suite don't know what's going on. And, and there's always been something over the last couple of years. And, and it's just better for them and their quarterly earnings to focus on cutting costs rather than making investments that, that who knows how it's going to turn out. Yeah, right. I mean, uncertainty does play a role. Uh, there's political uncertainty. There's uncertainty over the slowdown in China and what it means for the global economy and so on. So that's clearly also a contributing factor. But again, I think the bigger trend is that there is just less need for capital, for business investment um, in our modern economies. And this adds to the global savings glut. There's there's less demand for the savings that get generated uh, for business investment. And I think that's the main reason why the equilibrium interest rate, the neutral interest rate, is so low. It may even be negative. Wow. I don't believe, Mike, I've ever heard that. Well, we've heard from some Fed officials who who think it could be that low, and uh, certainly um, the Fed staff has argued it could be that low, which would imply that um, what we're going to see is uh, real rates very low for a very long time, and yet we're not not getting a monetary policy – response uh, impulse to that, Jakob. Yeah, that's right. I mean, interest rates are much lower than the historical norm, but they have been low for a long time, and we haven't really seen an overheating economy. So that tells you that the, the natural interest rate is low. This also means that the current policy stance is maybe less expansionary than many people think. And I think that also puts limits on the extent to which the Fed will be able to raise interest rates. Well, okay. And and within this, it's lovely to do on a Friday to sharpen the mind for the weekend. Within this, the dynamic is price change and currency. Let's start with price change. If you drive down to a zero or a negative terminal value, by definition, you bring in disinflation and deflation to equilibrate back to a positive return, right? So you're just assuming disinflation forever. 
Well, I think that's clearly been the trend over the past 10 years or so. Mm. And I don't think the trend is over yet. But eventually, I think when we get bolder policy responses, and I'm not talking monetary policy now, I'm talking fiscal policy. If we get bolder fiscal policy responses, you've mentioned tax cuts earlier on, I would add uh, higher government spending. I think that's when you could start to see some inflation coming in. It pushes back against those trends. Right. And then if you you then throw in another emerging trend, which is the trend towards more protectionism and, you know, the the, the trend towards more uh, redistribution, which is the response to the discontent we mm-hmm. see in the in the political area, then I think you could actually end up in a situation where inflation starts to surprise on the upside. And as we discussed on this program last week, I think the longer term outlook for the global economy is actually for stagflation rather than the current stagnation and uh, disinflation. Does all of this talk benefit the exorbitant privilege of the dollar? I think the dollar is still the best of a bad bunch. So I think the risk here is rather that the dollar strengthens too much rather than that it weakens. And, you know, usually when times get bad in the global economy, when they get really bad, then the dollar strengthens. Uh, So I think the risk here is rather that uh, we see a stronger than a weaker dollar. How strong, though? We, we saw a big move up in 2014, then it's essentially traded sideways within a, with a band for the last year right. or so. And the, kind of the bottom line question is, how worried does the Fed get? How much of an impact does it have on the U.S. economy? Well, I think the lesson of last year when, when the dollar strengthened so much was that too, too strong a dollar is a bad thing for the global economy and also for the U.S. It tightens financial conditions in the U.S. And it was bad news for all the dollar debtors in emerging markets. Plus, it led to a reaction from the Chinese who did not want to appreciate alongside the dollar anymore. So I, I think mm-hmm. we are now in a broad trading range for the dollar, in a broad sideways trading range. There's a natural tendency for the dollar to appreciate But I think central banks, including the Fed, will stem against that. This is another reason for the Fed to be very, very cautious in raising interest rates. Because if they get too aggressive, the dollar goes through the roof. Then you get another Chinese reaction in terms of depreciation. And I think that that's something that is is a big worry for the Fed after what happened last August and earlier this year. With an operative phrase there, through the roof. Jakob Fels, thank you so much for allowing us to finish strong on this most interesting day. Uh, Mr. Fels is with PIMCO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.